Amen. Man, it feels like it's been a while since I've been up here to preach with you guys. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Well, uh, those of you that don't know, my name is uh, Jeff Throne and my wife Kelly. Uh, sitting over here. Amen. We lead, uh, we oversee the uh, teen ministry uh, throughout the Hampton Road Church. Amen. Now, we've been in the uh, Peninsula region for a little bit there, and uh, we're looking forward to rejoining you guys here come July. So I'm looking forward to that. It should be amazing. But it's great just to be here to see a bunch of new new faces in the crowd. It's great. Get to see some new TVs up here. Haven't quite figured out what those are for. I'm going to say during football season, Red Zone channel on that one. Notes on that one. And I can keep you guys up to date. Thinking about you guys. Keep you guys up to date with what's happening. When the, you know, when, when the Redskins score a touchdown, it will be right there. Amen. Everybody's a winner in the offseason. Everybody is perfect in the offseason. Hopes are high. Hopes are high. Amen. Well, the Peninsula Team Ministry, I'll give you guys just a little bit of an um, update. We've been having just an incredible, incredible time in the Peninsula region in the team ministry. God has been doing great things there. Uh, since last summer, 11 teens have been baptized in the Peninsula Team Ministry. You know, currently we have about eight more uh, teens that are really close to getting baptized. They're right there in the, in, just in the Peninsula region alone. Uh, it has been awesome to be able to work with so many new families. We've had a lot of families get converted into the church and with that, bring their teens with them. And uh, because of that, the, the uh, region up there, the team ministry has become the largest team ministry out of all three of the regions. And it, like I said, it has been amazing just to kind of sit back and watch God work within the team ministry. It's been great um, to be able to work with uh, Ed and Deb, too, just to be able to work with them closely and just to be able to get both of their children baptized as well in this past year, which is great. And uh, I know for them that they are just really excited about uh, what the team ministry has been doing, especially within their own families. Amen. But like I said, Kelly and I, we're looking forward to being back here, though. Looking forward to being back here and seeing what God can do, what God is going to do, not only in the region, but in the teen ministry as well. Amen? Amen. Well, today we're going to be uh, jumping right back into the Gospel of Luke. We've been uh, focusing on the Holy Spirit for the past month, which I don't know about you, but it has been incredibly refreshing. It has been eye-opening. For me to really to be able to see, hey, how is the Holy Spirit working in my life? Yeah. How has the Holy Spirit been wanting to prompt me to go out there and to do something for Him? It's been a great time just focusing on that and figuring out, man, what does the Holy Spirit want me to do right. today? Right. But of course, that doesn't have to stop right. just because we're done. Right. The Bible is still here. The Bible is still true. And the Holy Spirit will still prompt us to do things today, tomorrow, and the next day until the day we die. Amen? But uh, we're going to be looking at Luke 13, if we want to turn on over there. We're going to be looking at a very familiar passage. Sean. There it goes. Down. We're looking at a very familiar passage to us. We're looking at the narrow door. Now, I know for a lot of us who have uh, either studied the Bible with people or have sat in Bible studies, this passage is going to be one of those passages that, that 
As soon as I said narrow door, you got things running through your mind already. Oh, yeah, got it. Know that one. I know the talking points. I know the questions I should ask. Do you think you're entering through the narrow door? And yes, I'm going to ask that question, so don't you? But I want us to look this morning at this passage with fresh eyes. I want us to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart this morning. I want to work its way deep into your heart. Don't tune it out just because you've heard this passage read many times before. Just because you may have studied this out and even presented and preached it yourself. Please look at it with fresh eyes. You know, for me personally, and upon reading, getting this passage saying, hey, Jeff, Ed asked me to preach this passage. I said, great, love it. I think I got my, I think I got my, you know, got my head wrapped around it already. But little did I know as I sat down and started really diving deep, so much more started to rise to the surface. So before we start reading, let's go to God in prayer and ask him for his help as we read this passage. God, thank you so much, Lord, that your Holy Spirit works always. God, thank you so much that you have given us just uh, just your word of God to prompt us. God, and I pray this morning as we read this passage, God, a familiar passage, God, one that each and um, every one of us could probably quote one or two lines from, God, that you allow it just to uh, just to hit us uh, deep, God, within our hearts, God, and that we can walk out of here convicted, God, feeling like, man, I heard the word of God for, uh, for the first time and it cut me deep. God, I just love you so much, Lord, and I pray that you can use me this morning, put me to the side, God, and allow your spirit to flow through me, God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's pick up here in verse 22, chapter 13, the narrow door. Then Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching as he, as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? I'll stop right here for a minute. Jesus, we know, is on his way to Jerusalem. And of course, many of us who have read through the Gospels have sat in church at any point in time in our lives. Know what he's about to do. Know where he's headed to Jerusalem. You know, then uh, on his way there, he gets stopped by this nameless, faceless person. We don't know if it's guy, girl, Jew, Gentile. We're going to assume probably a Jew. But he asks Jesus, who will be saved? I mean, he's a kind of general. Hey, out of, I don't know, Jesus, all these people around you that you see as you're making your way through town, village, and, and little, little, little areas along the way, who out of all those people is going to be saved, Jesus? Just let me know. I'm more concerned about them, Jesus. I want to know who's going to be there so I can let them know. That's, that's just who I am, Jesus. Let me know who's going to be saved. But then, of course, Jesus has turns it on him. He turns it on him and makes it personal, as we're going to see. He's going to turn it on him and make it about him and whether or not he will be saved. That's right. So the real question cloaked underneath is, am I going to be saved? And that's my question to you this morning. Am I going to be saved? Are you going to be saved? Really think about it. Think about if Jesus walked through that door right now. You run up to him. Would you ask with confidence, Jesus, am I going to be saved? Would you feel confident in approaching him? Right. Would you be hoping for yes? Would you be expecting a no? I'm sorry. Not, not quite. Our goal, my goal this morning is to answer that question. 
You know, I personally, I can't guarantee your salvation. I can't do it. But hopefully this passage will guide us and direct us to a place that we feel confident and we feel like we're equipped in order to answer that question through the word of God. Amen. Let's continue on in verse 24. He said to he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first. And the first will be last. Now, Jesus begins to answer this question about everyone with a very personal response and directly answering the question, who will be saved? He starts off by saying, hey, there's going to be a door. And what's the purpose of a door? What's the purpose of your door in your house? Keep stuff in and keep stuff out. That's a dual purpose, right? Same thing with this door. Keep things in. Those within the kingdom of God and keep those outside, those who are outside of the kingdom of God. To protect those behind the door, but to also shield those who are trying to come in from allowing them to get through the door. But what does does Jesus say about this door? The door will be narrow. Point number one. Jesus says the door will be narrow. It's not a huge door. It's not a barn door. It's not a sliding glass door. It's not a double door. It's not a garage door. This is a narrow door. In addition, it's interesting to note there's only one door. There is only one narrow door. And one option. One option to get in. With two choices. In or out. I think deep down inside, the rebel within each and every one of us doesn't like that. We don't want to hear, hey, there's only one option and it's small. You got one option and it's teeny. That's it. We want to, we want to be able to figure out, well, I could probably, you know, get around the door, go burrow a hole through, maybe go around the back and see if there's another little secret hideout. I can go right in, make my way into heaven. That's how I'm going to get in. It just says, nope, one door. You know, as people, we always want to kind of stretch it. We want to kind of expand everything. We're saying, hey, Jesus, you say it's a narrow door. I kind of want to be a little bit wider. I'm not really feeling that whole narrow thing. Make it a little wider for me. We start to do this. We see this clearly in our own convictions. We We want to stretch our own convictions. The things that we hold dear, that we say, hey, I'd never do that. All of a sudden, hey, here I go. Let me stretch it. Let me just make it a little bit wider so I can fit through. Come on, you know, this past week, um, my, my wife and I went out to go buy a new car. Um, 
Yeah, new car. Fun experience, right? I actually really enjoy buying cars and selling cars. I've had quite a few. Um, but, uh, you know, I always give the advice to all the brothers that come up to me and say, Hey, Jeff, because I like to work on cars too, so that's why they come and talk to me. And Like, Jeff, what kind of car should I buy? And I'm like, rule number one, don't ever buy a new car. If you buy a new car, sorry. You're the one who lost a lot of money. But anyways, amen. I was like, because the second you drive it off the lot, it's going to depreciate. I've never had an investment that, you know, is going to depreciate that much that quickly. Not exactly a wise thing in my mind. I'm like, go buy one that's slightly used, certified, and get a better deal. I'm like, man, that's what you got to do. That's the way you got to do it. Amen. If you have different convictions, we can talk about it later. But... That was always, that's my advice and that's my own personal conviction that I always give to the single brothers and young married brothers who come up to me and ask me for advice on cars. But here I am, Kelly and I, going to buy her a new car, not me, her a new car. <laughs> I started looking, we're like, hey, let's get something that's a little bit, you know, more efficient. Let's get a Prius. And before you guys all start judging me and looking at me, I still own a Jeep Wrangler and a, and a, and a GMC, okay? So, amen. Still, still full-blooded American right here. <laughs> You can have one gas-efficient car. Just one. Just, just one hybrid. You don't, you, don't, you don't need to. After that, I don't know. We'll question your you know, commitment to America after that. But we'll have to erase that from the recording. Amen. Um, but here, here I am. Kelly and I are sitting there, and, and, and I'm thinking, man, there's this great deal on this new Prius. If I spend a little bit more money, if I just stretch it a little bit, that we could get a great new deal on this new car. And I'm sitting there with this salesman going through it, and what do you know? I'm about to pay 60 more dollars than my agreed upon, in Kelly and I's agreed upon budgets. And I'm like, but it's so new and shiny. It's great. It's good. Look at it. It's new. It's going to be way different than the one that's one years old and certified and only has, you know, 15,000 miles on it. It's brand new though. And here I am stretching my own personal convictions, trying to widen it, even for myself. For something as silly as a car. But yet that's what we do. We want to stretch our own convictions so that we can fit through that narrow path. We say, hey, let's just make it a little bit wider for what I want. For what I desire. But there is only one. Only one door. Which is Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, no one comes through him except to the Father. The entrance is narrow. The expectations are set in absolute. There's only one way and it is tight. If you don't like it, you're not getting in. You know, the, the Presbyterian Church... Joined other religious groups, the conservative Jewish movement, reformed Jewish movement, Society of Friends, which is the Quakers, the Unitarian Universalist Association of Churches, United Churches of Christ, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church. A couple weeks ago in a vote, they formally sanctioned same-sex marriage. 1.7 member church voted. 1.7 million church, they voted. To amend its constitution to allow gay marriage and ceremonies. A move widely um, anticipated after a, uh, a step in the church took last summer to allow the clergy to marry same-sex couples. 
They voted. 1.7 members decided, I'm going to stretch that door. I'm going to make it a little wider. Because it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable. That's That's the society we live in today. They don't want to listen to the Old Testament scriptures in Leviticus 18. Or the New Testament in Romans 1. They're fighting to widen the door. And make no mistake, you are as well. In your own hearts. Even some of us here today in this room struggle with the concept of this exclusivity. Homosexuality. We have issues with it. Say, hey, Jeff, you need to catch up with the times. We have trouble with what the Bible says about your money, your time, your kids, your job, what you think, what you do, and what you say. We struggle with it. We don't want to hear there's only one way. Right. We don't want to hear the way that it's narrow. Jeff, you got to be open-minded. No, I don't. I don't. We don't have the right to place our ideas of tolerance above the very word of God. The door is narrow. There's only one door. You can't make that door match your own criteria. But at the end of the day, it boils down to sin. It boils down to the sin in your own life. That's why you want to widen that door. We want to widen because we want to let ourselves in. We don't want to have to cut out the sin in our lives. We want to say, hey, Jesus, I know what you say about that, but you know what? I want to widen it for me. God, can you make it a little bit more tolerant for my impurity? For my lust? Can you make it a little bit wider for my greed? A little bit wider for my impatience? I know about laying down my life every day and taking it across daily. Jesus, I know what you said, but can you make it a little bit wider for me? For my disrespect, anger, addictions, gossip, deceit, selfishness, hatred. Make it a little wider. Jesus says, no, the door is narrow. No no matter what you want or say, the door is narrow. And because that door is narrow, you've got to fight to make it in. You know, here in the text, Jesus talks about making every effort. First, I don't really like this translation, make every effort. It's a little weak. It's a little kind of like I'm playing video games. I'm going to make every effort to win. I don't want to lose, so therefore I'm going to try to win no matter what. I might even turn off the console. Right, teens? You know what I'm talking about? Get real mad, turn it off. You're like, I didn't lose. It uh, shut off on its own. But here the Greek word, agonizomai, it means to exert oneself. To fight, to labor, to strive. It suggests a persistent effort. This is not just a good effort. Or a, hey, way to go, buddy. Good job. This is used for athletes and war. And war. Life and death. Just like what this passage is talking about. You know, the gloves of a Greek boxer on the inside were lined with fur, but the outside, the leather had pieces of lead on the outside and bits of iron as they fought. That was what it was. That's you, stra- that's you straining at that moment, getting hit with that. 
Greek boxers, if you lost, I mean, Greek wrestlers, if you lost, you got your eyes gouged out. Talk about what it meant to those hearing this. Say, man, I gotta, I gotta strive like those athletes. My eyes are gonna get gouged out. She says, nope, you're not gonna make it. You know, in the word agonizomai, we see the word agony in there. Yeah. Just, man, I'm going to put it all out there. This is going to be difficult. It's going to cause me pain. Agony involved. If you want to make it through the narrow door, you've got to be prepared to give intense effort in the tune of agony. I don't know about you, but that's not what my spring break looked like. I don't think I could have described it as, man, I was in agony for Jesus. I was in agony to make it through the narrow door. But those hearing Jesus' words would have immediately connected it to that concept. Blood, sweat, and tears to accomplish even their own man-made goals of winning that prize. Here Jesus is connecting it with the ultimate prize. You guys know about Michael Phelps? Let's not talk about his personal issues. Let's talk about the athlete, Michael Phelps, all right? I think we all can agree, very spectacular athlete. Out of the pool, eh, we'll leave that up to your own discretion. Michael Phelps' workout. He's usually at the pool at 6.30 a.m. where he swims for an average of six hours a day. Or around eight miles per day, whichever one is easier for you. He swims six days per week, including holidays. That would be spring break. In addition to the time in the pool, uh, Michael Phelps lifts weights, spending about three hours a day lifting weights to strengthen his body. But when he's not training, check this out. This this part just blew me away. Michael Phelps eats eight to ten thousand calories per day. Eight to 10,000 calories a day. I don't know about you. If I ate that much calories, I would look like a different person. Not in a good way. I would not look like Michael Phelps. This is his typical breakfast. Three fried egg sandwiches with low-fat cheese. Gotta get the low-fat. Lettuce, tomato, mayonnaise, and fried onions. One omelet, one bowl of grits. Three slices of French toast and a pow- with powdered sugar. Three chocolate chip pancakes. Two cups of coffee. That's his breakfast. His daily menu includes one pound, one pound of pasta per day. A thousand calories worth of energy drinks. It's got to keep going. And I love this part. And an entire pizza every day. That's how he trades. Some of you are like, man, I should be an Olympic swimmer, Jeff. I've been training my whole life, but never knew it. I'm ready to go. I don't know why they haven't called me up yet. But Michael Phelps does this all just to win a piece of gold. To win one piece of gold. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 9, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown or a piece of gold that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the 
surprise. Would agonizomai be the right word to describe your effort this morning? What would, that, what would that effort look like? Would that mean that you'd be reading your Bible daily, spending time in prayer, sharing the gospel, working on your own simple nature and character daily on a consistent basis? Yes. But let me make one thing clear. I'm not advocating works over faith. But can you really make every effort and not have those happen? I got to say, if you're making every effort, that would come along with it, wouldn't you think? So I'm not saying you got to do works to get into heaven. No, quite the opposite. You put every effort, which will produce those works so you can get into heaven. But we got to continually fight to make it through that door. You're not going to make it in without direct effort. How crazy would it be if, for Michael Phelps as he steps down off the podium in a post-win effort uh, you know, conference uh, interview? If he says, hey, I just woke up this morning, figured I'd give it a shot, made it here, been eating all those pizzas, training. And what do you know? I got in the pool, swam a couple of times and won a gold. Yeah! Loving life. American dream. No, he puts forth deliberate effort. And the same with you. You will not make it through without deliberate, direct effort to make it through that door. The kingdom is not entered by drifting, but by a decision. But why do we need to make every effort? Because the door will be closed. In verse 25... It says, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, he will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. The owner of the house, God himself, will close that door. There will be an expiration. There will be a time when time is up. When your efforts won't matter. No matter how much you feel like you love God, no matter how much you feel like, man, I put forth all this effort. Not going to matter. The door will close. There will be a great divide, a great chasm, as the gospel speak about, set between the outside and inside. And we see that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not just a figurative term. We see that it's this exact term is recorded seven times in the gospel. We see a a grim picture of those that are shut out. We see a picture of hell itself. This is a real picture of hell. Just as real as those sitting inside feasting, we would say immediately gravitate and say, hey, they're in heaven. Those outside the door, weeping and gnashing, not quite have made it through, they're in hell. It's not not really a uh, popular topic that we talk about. We don't have whole um, campaign months on hell. Right? That'd be kind of depressing. It was like, hey, next campaign we're going to do as church, we're going to focus on hell. So you'd be like, woo. Can't wait to jump into that one. But here we see that hell, it's an ongoing, never ceasing agony. Some of us would say it's impossible for a God. A God of mercy, a God of love, to allow such a place of 
never ceasing torment. But when I look at this passage, that's all I see. It's not a man-made idea to keep kids in check. This is a real God-made place. Meant to motivate us. To make every effort. Hell is a real place. An eternal place of fire, torment, and anguish. It better be a motivator. Because it was for those listening to Jesus. But what do we see here about hell? Hell is a constant, conscious sorrow. We see that in them weeping. They're weeping constantly because they know what they're missing out on. They know what they're enduring. That weeping. Also, we see that hell is a place of extreme anguish and despair. We see the gnashing of teeth as in great pain. Think of it when you, you know, got a, when you got a cut, you go, right? You grit, you grit your teeth, right? The weeping here is inconsolable, never ending, wretchedness, and utter everlasting hopelessness. The accom- accompanied by the grinding or gnashing of your teeth is that a frenzied anger, unmitigated rage. For this weeping and grinding, we see three causes. They get to see. They're made aware of those that make it in. They get to see the goodness on the other side. They know what's happening in heaven, but yet they're outside the door in agony, in pain. They also see that, hey, there's many people are let in. She says east, west, north and south. All of them are going to come in, but you're going to be left outside. But the clincher, they themselves are thrown out. They're told, you can't make it in. Why? Because you didn't make every effort. Now we see agony here once again. We see this theme of agony come back around. But the difference, the agony that you put in to make it through the narrow door, you have hope. You have an end goal in mind. You're moving forward with something in your mind. Here the agony is attached to hopelessness. The agony that never ends. The pain that never ends. This is not agonizomai. This is an agony that lasts and lasts. We see here too that there is a definite time. There's a definite time when that door will close. Which no one knows, not even Jesus himself. According to Mark 13. God is a God of grace, no doubt. But he is also the God of absolutes. Amen. That there will be a time for us to make our best efforts. But there will also be a time when it's not going to matter. You know, for those that are young, we like to think that... See, I threw that in there. We like to think that we can live forever. We like to think that we can live forever. And that door, we have time to figure it out. For those that are older, we get prideful. See, I threw that in there too. We get prideful and think, man... I am putting everything in. That doesn't, that doesn't really apply to me. I, you know what? I feel like I have been putting my best effort. But there will be a time when it closes. Whether you're young or old. It does not discriminate. You know, for me, growing up in the, growing up in the church, I always heard the sermons on hell, sermons on you know, salvation, on, on the last days, and thought to myself, yeah, one day. One day, 
But you don't know if that one day is today yeah. or tomorrow. Teens, your time is numbered. Jesus come, could come back tomorrow. The more you wait, the longer you put it off, then you'll start slipping into the second category. You become more prideful. You start thinking you know what's best. And that door will close. I think a lot of us, it's kind of like the absent father. Thinking, man, I got time. I'll spend time with my son later. I'll, I'll build those great memories. Man, you know what? Next month, I'm going to plan something really special. I'll put it all out there. Then what do you know? He's all grown up, out of the house. Your time slipped away like that. The door will close. You can only make plans for so long. There's an urgency needed. There is a heaven and a hell. Banking on time is not a great decision. The reality is that you've got to make effort to fight to get in. The time is now. What are you waiting for? The scariest thing of all, though, is that those who are shut out, they seem surprised, as we see in verse 25 to 27. These are the Jews. These are God's chosen people. More than that, these are the Jews that are actually seeking after Jesus. These are the ones who are listening to him. They spent time with Jesus. They ate and drank with him. They heard the word of God straight from his mouth. That's more than I can say about myself. But yet they did not make it in. They were kicked to the curb. Door slammed in their face. This is a picture of you and me. This is you and me sitting in here right now. Think that, hey, I'm in. I sit in my same seat. I've been sitting in this seat since we opened this building. Sitting right here, listening to the word of God. I got it, Jeff. I'm in. It's more than that. Jesus says many will try and not be able to. No one strolls into heaven. No one waltzes into heaven. You've got to fight to make it in. Your attendance, your membership, your parents, your time, when you were doing really well a couple years ago, isn't going to cut it. You don't want to be surprised on that last day. It takes every effort from right now until the day you die. You know, when you make every effort, something incredible happens. Jesus knows you. He sees you walking up to the narrow door and greets you by name. Hey, Cody, I got a seat picked out for you. Right next to Brittany. I know you want to. Hey, Mark Johnson, I got a spot saved for you. Right there, man. Take a seat. Brielle, we've been waiting for you a long time. Come on in. Everybody's waiting. To be known by Jesus is your ticket in. To be known by Jesus is your ticket to the feast at the table. When you make every effort, when you fight to get in, when you fight to live a righteous life, you develop a relationship with Jesus. This obscure concept that I even have trouble describing to teens all the time about what is a relationship with God is defined right here. Your effort defines your relationship with Jesus and ultimately your entrance to heaven.
know, Kelly and I are going on being married for 11 years at the end of this month. You know, imagine if I just stopped putting effort into it. Just for one year. Took a little break. Just one year. Yeah. Come on. Not even 10%. What would happen? The relationship would start to turn. It would not go well with me. Not go well. But the more continual effort I put into it, our relationship grows and deepens. Every effort means an incredible relationship with Jesus. A continual every effort. So your relationship will grow. The more you get to know Jesus, the more your relationship grows and the more you become like Him. Anyone who's married would totally agree. The longer you're married, the more you two come together and start to look alike even. You start to act alike. You start to like, like the new things. Cody and Brittany just looked at each other. They're like, uh-huh. They've only been married for a couple months, so amen. We'll cut some slack. But the more you become like him, the less you become like you. And guess what? The less you listen to your simple nature. You begin to replace your evil thoughts and your actions with righteous ones. What does that sound like? Repentance. If you have a genuine personal relationship with Jesus, you will not continue in your evil deeds. You won't continue in your sin. It's impossible. Many of us wonder why we don't feel close to Jesus or why we feel distant reading our Bible, distant while praying, because you're in sin. Your relationship with Jesus can't coexist with sin. You can test yourself right now how well you know Jesus by how righteous your life is. doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. In verse 29, the encouraging part of this passage, amen, come on, come on. that everybody has an opportunity. That's right. East, west, north, and south, they all have equal opportunity to make it into heaven. But it's going to take you making every effort. It's going to take you fighting to make it through. So to wrap it up, to conclude everything here, what I want you guys to do on your piece of paper... not moving but whatever uh i want you to draw a door draw a door it's a little bit i was an art major in school you're like what is he doing preaching Uh." (laughs) draw a door i can draw doors really well just know that draw a door on your piece of paper whatever type of door you want you want a little like hobbit door a little round one want a big scary door with bars on it whatever you want You go ahead and draw yourself a door. You know, as you're drawing that door, I want you to start thinking about something. You know, what you draw actually says a lot about you. And dare I say, says a lot about your relationship with God. Is that door open or closed? Some of you are like, make it open now. Draw a new one. Brought the pen today. Scratch it out. Is your door open or closed? Which side of the door is it? The outside or the inside? 
says a lot about what's going on in your heart right now. It says a lot about your relationship with God. It says a lot about the effort that you're putting to make it through that door. So my challenge for you this week, I want you to answer and ask yourself the question, am I going to be saved? I want you to find one area in your life that causes you to lose confidence in your passage through the narrow door. I know each and every one of us can find at least one area in our life that we can make every effort, that we can fight to change. It may be something that you need to stop doing or something that you need to start doing. But I want you to identify that one area. I want you to go after it this week. I want you to fight to make every effort to make it through that narrow door. Am I going to be saved? What a huge question with a simple answer. Yeah. Yes. If, I'm, if I fight to make every effort to enter through that narrow door... Jesus will know me. Jesus will know me by name. And I will take my seat. Yes, my seat at the kingdom of God, at the feast in heaven. So let us make every effort. Let us fight to make it through the narrow door. Amen. 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 Awesome.